0: University of Chicago Public Policy Podcasts.
1: What if I told you that for the last 17 years, the U.S. government has been funding an expensive program that most people don't know much about? No real surprise there. What if I told you that after 17 years, that program has failed to achieve almost all of its originally stated objectives and is still nowhere close to being ready for full operational use? What if that program, originally projected to cost around $200 billion, we're now on track to spend over $1.5 trillion in taxpayer money, or, as James Fallows wrote in an article for The Atlantic in 2015, the same as a low-end estimate of the entire Iraq war. Surely, if such a program existed, you would have heard of it by now. There would be a national outcry. Every time there is a new problem or hiccup, which happens almost every week, by the way, it would be front-page news. But this program does exist, and it's not a healthcare plan, an offshore drilling rig, or a failed disaster response effort. The government organization overseeing this program is the United States military, and the program is an airplane. On my orders, the United States military has begun strikes against Al-Qaeda terrorist training camps. We must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence ...by the military-industrial complex.
0: U.S. warships and planes launched the opening salvo of Operation Iraqi Freedom. After years of devastating cuts, we're now rebuilding our military like we never have before.
1: Hello, and welcome to the first episode of Thank You for Your Service, a hard look at American civil military affairs. I'm Thomas Krasnation. And I'm Nick Paraiso. Nick and I are both currently officers in the U.S. Navy, Nick, you and I both graduated from the Naval Academy this May, and now we've been given the opportunity to complete our master's degrees in public policy here at the University of Chicago. And we'll say this at the beginning of every episode, but even though we're still active duty, this podcast is just part of the academic discourse we're hoping to have here in grad school and is in no way intended to reflect the official positions of the Department of Defense or any other military entity.
0: That's right, Thomas. We've always been interested in the military and its relationship with civilian society, Having come from a service academy background and now studying public policy at a civilian institution, we figured what better place is there than the Harris School at UChicago to explore the civilian-military relationship and to further that discussion
1: with others. So we're going to spend a lot of time on this show talking about something called the civil-military gap or the civil-military divide. Nick, suppose some article or new research comes out and the authors refer to the civil-military gap. What should our listeners assume they're referring to?
0: Well, as we know, Thomas, the very concept of civilian control of the military is built into our Constitution. Our military takes orders from a civilian commander-in-chief and is therefore accountable to the civilian citizenry. In that regard, there's a clear civilian-military divide. But it's more than that. Maybe that's where the term civil-military gap is more appropriate. Many scholars and academics like Dr. Corey Shockey and Professor Rosa Brooks, and even military leaders like former Marine Corps General and current Secretary of Defense Jim Mattis, have noted that ordinary citizens don't know a whole lot about the military. On the other hand, the military is an institution rooted in tradition, whereas society tends toward more progressive ideologies. Yes, there's a constitutional divide between the military and the civilians they're sworn to defend, But there's also a growing cultural divide.
1: So we're talking about both a legal difference, a legal distinction between civilian policymakers and military leaders on a high level. And we're also talking about a growing cultural divide that's playing out in society. What are some examples of of how that works or why it matters?
0: In the Fallows article that you talked about earlier, uh, he writes how a Gallup poll uh, placed um, public trust and public support in the military at 70% whereas the approval rating for Congress was only 7%. And so when you have ratings like that, it's really hard for elected officials to criticize in any way, shape, or form anything about the military or defense policy. Uh, For example, the defense budget for fiscal year 2019 made it out of the House Armed Services Committee with only one vote against it. Another area where we see this is with the F-35 program, also known as the Joint Strike Fighter Uh, It's the latest military weapons platform, uh, and it's meant to be this huge advance in combat technology, meant to unify the military by being the same platform across the branches. Uh, But it's faced hurdle after hurdle, and it's totaled almost $1.5 trillion in taxpayer money. The project is economically costly, and for that there's reason to criticize it politically. uh, But when you show support for it instead, that's hugely politically beneficial. The project has been allocated to... 46 states and 383 congressional districts with different contractors and military entities uh, working on different aspects of the project. So when you can you know, bring those jobs back to your district as well as show support for the military by um, supporting this program, that can be a huge political win.
1: Okay, so again, we're seeing kind of how this might be important for senior leaders in the military or high-level policymakers to think more about why should anyone else care? Why should listeners of our podcast believe that the civil-military gap is is a big deal?
0: I, I think it goes beyond the senior leadership in our government. I remember reading this article last year by Carl Marlantes, and in it he talks about a time when he was growing up, how almost every friend's father or uncle had served in World War II. All the women in town knew that a destroyer was smaller than a cruiser— and that a platoon was smaller than a company because their husbands had all been on destroyers or in platoons. Back then it was called the service, today we call it the military. The military was as ingrained in people's minds as much as any other social institution, whether it be the school systems, the churches, the courts. We're not as familiar with the military anymore. Research shows that only 15% of Americans have served or had an immediate family member serve in the military after 9-11. Only 8% of Americans have worked with someone in the military, and less than 1% of Americans are actually on active duty in the military.
1: Okay, so those statistics kind of show how the military is this shrinking percentage of the population. Is that the whole problem? Is it just a function of population growth versus the constant size of the military? Or, or are there other factors in there as well?
0: Well, when you look at the people who actually serve in the armed forces— you see that a lot of them come from military legacies, that their parents or their grandparents served in the military before them. So it's gotten to the point where the profession of arms has almost become just a family
1: tradition. Your, your father was in the military, right? He was himself an academy grad, yeah. I remember when I was at the academy, there, almost everyone in my company, almost everybody that I knew had at least some family member that was in the military. For me, it was my grandfather, was a colonel in the army. So that's, that's really interesting to see, see how that plays out. I think that's a familiar theme for a lot of service members, that they, they were influenced to join by someone who was close to them or somebody who was in their family. And I think it goes beyond military legacy
0: as well. When we look at recruiting, we see that recruits mainly only come from certain parts of the country, such that the population of the armed forces is not truly representative of the entire population of the country.
1: So there's clearly a divide that's taking shape between the civilian world and the military world, and that divide has led to an unfamiliarity with the military, which can have big consequences policy-wise, because if our citizenry isn't as knowledgeable about the military and defense policy as it uh, should be, then policymakers don't have much incentive to care about those things or talk about those things or debate those things either. Is that kind of what you're trying to say, Nick?
0: Exactly. A functioning republic requires its citizens to be informed in order to hold the elected officials accountable. But if our citizens aren't informed about the military or defense policy as they can be, how are they going to hold our elected officials accountable when they vote on things regarding the military or defense policy?
1: Over the next several months on this podcast, we're going to engage with a lot of practitioners and scholars in the field of civil-military relations to try and learn more about these problems and what can be done to help solve them. We're going to talk about some things like the authorization for use of military force and military recruitment structures and ROTC on college campuses. We're really excited about some of our upcoming guests, so be sure to subscribe so you can get each episode as soon as it's released. In conclusion, a word on the title of our series, thank you for your service. There's little doubt that every person who says this phrase intends to express sincere appreciation for the sacrifices of our service members. But the frequency with which this one phrase is used also betrays the limited extent of civilian military conversations. Simply put, we as a society don't know much about our military at the same time we're supposed to be grateful for it. So this Veterans Day, We encourage you to thank a veteran for their service if you have the opportunity or the inclination. But don't be afraid to go a little deeper. Ask them what branch they were in, what they did, where they served, what their favorite experiences were. If you're a little more familiar with the person, ask them what they learned from serving, or what they would do differently if they could go back.
0: If you're one of the many Americans who doesn't know any members of the military, there are dozens of other ways to express your gratitude if you'd like. Read a book about military history. And if you find yourself unfamiliar with terms or expressions, don't put it down. Find out what they mean. Stay informed by subscribing to a military newsletter, like military.com or Task and Purpose. Learn about our political system and how our constitution defines the military's role at home and abroad. Read the news to find out where and how our military forces are being used around the world. And find out whether your elected officials, the civilians who oversee your military, have coherent national security and defense policies.
1: There are many ways to celebrate this Veterans Day, but these efforts require all of our awareness, self-education, and dialogue. Regardless of party alliances or personal beliefs, the responsibility lies with you and me to close the gaps and to build bridges between those who serve and those for whom they do. All of this takes time, it takes effort, and it takes sacrifice, and for that, from our team here at the University of Chicago. Thank you for your service. This podcast is produced by Haas Yano and Alec McMillan. Our creative consultant is Sarah Claudi. Special thanks to Michelle Tran, Anita Joshi, and David Raban. This podcast is a production of the University of Chicago Public Policy Podcast and is in no way intended to reflect the official positions of the Department of Defense or any other military entity. I'm Thomas Krasnation. And I'm
0: Nick Paraiso. See you next time.